The Hearing. Twill Takeover. Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law. I just wish that everyone would try harder, myself included, to think more about our unconscious biases and what biases we bring with us everywhere we go, every day of our lives. To be conscious and and it's the little it's those tiny little decisions uh, who do who am i smiling at on the subway <laughs> you know who am i moving out of the way for on the sidewalk which person in the room am i approaching with my question it's just so easy to fall into a pattern of favoring people who are similar to ourselves hello and welcome to the twill takeover My name is Janelle Wrigley. I am your guest host for this mini-series collaboration between The Hearing and Transforming Women's Leadership in the Law, or TWIL for short. If you are not familiar with it, TWIL is dedicated to addressing the structural barriers that impact women in the legal industry, and it advocates for cultural change. The people behind that effort include Thomson Reuters stakeholders and external board members from the legal world. In this Twill Takeover series, I'll be speaking to inspirational leaders about their career journeys and the work that they're doing to make the legal profession a more equitable, diverse, inclusive, better place to be. We're aiming to inspire you, hopefully, and to provide you with some some real practical takeaways that you can bring back to your own lives and to your own workplaces um, to help us make progress in, in these areas. A little bit about me, I'm a former lawyer myself. I currently am a director at Practical Law. I practiced as an antitrust lawyer and a commercial litigator in my career. Um, I started at Simpson Thatcher and Bartlett in New York City. I spent some time at the Federal Trade Commission in Washington, D.C. as well, before taking a bit of a turn into the world of legal know-how, legal tech here at Thomson Reuters. Our guest today is Susan Crummeler of Crummeler Law Firm. Susan and her team help clients with a wide variety of very important issues with employment claims, gender, pregnancy, and race discrimination claims. Um, They work on sexual harassment and abuse cases and medical abuse cases as well. I loved our conversation today with Susan. She is a very open, fun, fierce person. And one thing that I really loved that I learned about her today is the way her career, which has been so successful and so influential, it was really not carefully planned out. It was sometimes even accidental, you know, in the way that she even went to law school in the first place. And I think she shows that we can have, you know, twists and turns in our careers. Things can happen that are unexpected. Um, it may take some time for us to find the things that we thrive at um, and, and what our place is in the legal profession. May not be what we thought it was going to be at the outset, um, and yet it's still possible to, to become a leader, to become um, very influential and to make a difference in the world the way that Susan has. Susan also has a powerful perspective on the things that can hold women back in the workplace, in the legal profession. And I think she is really an example of someone who who speaks up and fights not not only for herself and and people who are like her, but for everyone. So I hope you enjoy the discussion as, as much as I did. And I'll turn it over to our conversation. The Hearing Twill Takeover. 
Hello, Susan. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm excited to to be here. Yeah, it was a great reason for us to get back in touch. You and I went to law school together. I realized um, it'll be 20 years in August that we were starting um, law school. Wow. <laughs> so, not to date us. There's so much that I'm looking forward to talking to you about. I've found you to be an inspiring person. I've been following your career, even from, from a distance and the things that you've been doing. Um, and it's you came to mind immediately when we were thinking about guests for this series, which is focused on women's leadership and, and diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession. Um, but before we start talking about all of that, I know that you just had um, just an amazing victory in a trial. As I understand it, it's an $11.25 million jury verdict in a race and gender discrimination trial against Equinox um, on behalf of, of your client. I wanted to ask you just to to tell us a little bit about that case. Okay. I could spend 10 hours talking about the case, <laughs> so I'll try to be brief, and I'll also try not to cry because I'm very emotional about it. Our client was a Black woman at Equinox who was hired to a management position and essentially faced resistance from day one from this white bro culture into which she didn't fit. <laughs> and her ostensible subordinate, you know, had, a, had openly had a thing for black women where he would fetishize them and talk about how their asses and how they were so hot. And meanwhile, just disrespecting her authority, she was forbidden from disciplining him. She would complain. Everyone ignored her. He had friends with these higher up, upper level managers, and she was just all alone. She was overseeing a number of other personal trainers uh, who were Black, who also faced similar problems. So she was struggling to advocate for them as well as herself. And she was eventually fired for bogus reasons. And we were lucky that the jury understood what was really going on because Equinox threw up a lot of nonsense in their case. And it was an interesting case because the discrimination she suffered wasn't really specific to her being a woman and it wasn't specific to her being black. It was specific to her being a black woman and black women face discrimination that white women don't understand that black women don't understand or that we don't experience. It's, you know, the, the discriminations multiply. They don't just add, they multiply. And we uh, were fortunate and that our client was just so amazingly compelling. I mean, she's this brilliant, brilliant person. You love to hear her talk. And she really made clear what she had experienced. So yeah, we have, there was, it was 11.25 million from the jury. We had also stipulated to 16 grand in economic damages. And now we get to file a motion for our attorney's fees, which is what we're working on now. Awesome. Well, congratulations on that. <laughs> Thank you. What I love about it, and it's getting some media coverage, mm -hmm. it's just so inspiring and uplifting for everyone else to see these huge victories, to see big punitive damages get handed out, you know, especially coming on the heels of the E. Jean Carroll news as well. It just, you know, you, you understand that sometimes there is justice. So I, I love that. Well, there's an, uh, there's an unfortunate postscript that doesn't make the news, which is that judges in New York have not only the power, but some might even say the responsibility 
after a jury verdict to conform the jury verdict to other similar awards that other judges have approved, which means judges end up slashing jury verdicts very, very dramatically. We've seen verdicts chopped from millions, but there's numbers of fit. We could go down by one figure. We could go down by two figures. We could go down by three figures. Um, And the day after the trial ended, I slept until 2 p.m. and I woke up and I've been working round the clock ever since on these post-trial issues. So um, it's a big problem, but there's legislation uh, that's been introduced to curb the practice and we've been lobbying very hard for that too. That was going to be my next question because I know you're very involved um, in lobbying on these issues on behalf of your clients and the work that you do. So at least there's that. I didn't I didn't realize that. That is unfortunate to hear. But the verdict itself, you know, it's amazing. I know you were working and your team super hard, hard on that uh, trial. So that's great. So let's jump into uh, a little bit about you. One of the reasons we wanted to have you on is, is not only the work that you're doing, but also you as a person, um, you know, as a, as a woman leader uh, of a law firm. And I wanted to start just by asking, uh, you know, just a little bit about your, your background, where you grew up, what you were like as a kid. <laughs> start there. Sure. I grew up in and around Princeton, New Jersey. I've always been different. I was very shy. I was kind of a loner as a kid. I um I was extremely precocious. I skipped kindergarten, so I was younger than my peers. So did I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? There's that book that came out probably around that says, uh, everything I need to know I learned in kindergarten. And I always used to think, well, I guess I missed out on all that. <laughs> right. So that's an excuse to any, for everything for us. <laughs> um I, you know, I was very rebellious um, in middle school and high school. I, I had a shaved head, black spiky hair. I got into a lot of trouble. I was always very naturally bright. And so I could get away with doing the bare minimum in school, which is what I pretty much did my whole life, even law school. I guess the one fact about me that many people are most interested in is that I was the first female wrestler on my high school team. And it's it's sort of akin to how I've approached much of my life, which is by accident. (laughs) I didn't really know that I'm not sporty. I wasn't at all. And I didn't know that wrestling was only for boys. And I was walking down the hall and heard an announcement. And so I just sort of wandered into this room for the wrestling meeting. And suddenly it was this huge news at school. Susan Cromwell is joining the wrestling team. So then it was like I had to do it and I did it, but I was horrible. I lost almost every <laughs> single match. I was tiny and I'm a puny weakling with spindly arms and no spatial awareness. So um, I did it, but not, you know, <laughs> I, it, it's almost like a good lesson in what counts as success because by most reasonable measures, I was not a success <laughs> when it came to wrestling. And yet I hear, you know, decades later now people telling me, oh, I was so inspired by you. I'm like, oh, I wish you had told me at the time. I thought everyone was just <laughs> You're just losing Literally. matches. 
during those years, nobody, you know, <laughs> made me feel <laughs> like I was doing any cool, good thing. It was just like, I'm the loser who happens to be a girl and keeps getting beat up. Yeah, that's all. I feel, I guess, foreshadowing for what happens later in your career when you're sort of taking, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your experience is what you make of it, right? Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> And then how did you, I mean, that's not probably, I don't know if there's a typical person who goes to law school, but um, that, that doesn't sound quite like the stereotype that most people have in their mind. So how did you uh, end up in law? I, so my parents always wanted me to go to law school because I argued so much with them. Uh, this I do, I do think is common. Parents who lose arguments with their kids say, you should go to law school. Yeah. <laughs> but um it's funny because it's it's a similar story. I forgot all about law school. I moved to New York City. I was waitressing at a cafe and just living my best life, you know, partying a lot. Uh, and I forgot I had signed up for the LSATs. Now I'm I know I have ADHD, but at the time I didn't. <laughs> and uh, three days before the LSATs were scheduled, I was like, oh, expletive. What do I do? The LSATs are in three days. And all my friends said, oh, don't bother. You're not, you know, you need way more time than that to study. And I was like, don't tell me what to do. And I just crammed for three <laughs> days and I got a super awesome score that got me into NYU law. And so I did it. <laughs> but, um, Echoes of the real, wrestling story here. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's the story of my life, I guess. I mean, the funny thing is the real defining moment was at the LSATs. There was this guy coughing really loudly and it was bothering the entire room and everyone was just looking at each other, giving these awkward glances. And I gathered the courage to approach him and say, sir, can I get you a cough drop? You know, your coughing is really distracting. And he was just like, oh, sorry, I don't think there's anything I can do about it. So I raised my hand and I asked the proctor, I told the proctor, like this gentleman's cough, you know, I, I, I know he means no harm, but this gentleman is being very distracting to all the rest of us. And they took him out of the room. And after the test was over, I was swarmed by people thanking me and calling me their hero. And they were like, we would have done so much worse if you hadn't gotten rid of that guy. And in that moment, I was like, I'm meant to fight for justice. <laughs> so, I love that. There you are. And you're taking the LSAT. So it's perfect. Here I am. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what happened to that guy, though. He's probably sitting sitting by himself know. outside in the hallway. Time, you know, <laughs> Poor guy had a cough. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. Um, and then when we graduated from NYU, what did you? What was the first thing that you you did as a lawyer? I so first of all, um, as an aside, I struggled very greatly in law school, um, being unmedicated with my mm -hmm. uh, I. Every single semester, did virtually no work all semester, crammed during finals. I was I was in tears for the week before finals every single semester. Um, so I'm only saying that because I, I, I'm a strong advocate of anyone who suspects they might have ADHD to please go get diagnosed. <laughs> um, my life. When did you figure it out? Uh, after I started my law firm, I started doing some research. But in any event, so I going to big law, not that I would have had any interest in that, but it wasn't an option for me. A judicial clerkship wasn't an option for me. My grades were bad. 
In fact, I didn't even get into the public defender's office job that I thought I was a shoo-in for. There were, I think, four of us in our NYU class that were very interested in becoming public defenders. I had focused during law school on death penalty, anti-death penalty advocacy, and that's where I thought my life was going to go. Um, but I, when I <laughs> didn't get in to the public defender's office, I went to a civil nonprofit doing anti-eviction work. So I spent, uh, I knew I wanted to do public interest. I've always been a do-gooder, someone who wants to help others. Um, and so I spent 10 years after, I spent five years at a nonprofit representing tenants facing eviction and advocating for better living conditions for them. I then went to a small tenant side private firm that did the same work, but I could make a little more money. That's where I had the boss who tried to screw me out of my maternity leave and led me to start the firm that I now own. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, you had this experience, I think when you had your, when you're having your second child yes. um, that, that led you to found Carmiller. Uh, I was at home with my newborn, you know, who, and I had agreed to do a little bit of work here and there. I, I had really carefully negotiated this structured proposal over a course of five months where I would mostly be home, but I did some work during nap time and, uh, Seven weeks in, while I was supposed to be still completely off grid, my boss started contacting me saying, I need you back right away. Uh, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I I can't actually let you take maternity leave after all. (laughs) I need you here. Um, Because I had been doing pretty much everything for him. Um, (laughs) And it was, you know, I'm a pretty strong, tough person. I think most people would describe me as tough, strong, fearless, you know, and, and yet I felt so alone and vulnerable and ashamed and powerless. And I like, I'm, I've taught, I've told this story so many times and I still feel tears welling in my eyes when I do. Um, sorry, I guess one of the unintentional themes here is that I cry a lot, but, um, (laughs) I, I just kept thinking, you know, I could quit. I'm a lawyer. My husband's a lawyer. I'm white. I have privilege. You know, I'll be fine. But what if I was someone else who couldn't quit and and couldn't just, and I just kept thinking, what if I was in a less privileged position? What would I do? I would go back to work and bring a pack and plate into my office like my boss suggested and bring my tiny little baby to work and ignore her the entire time. And the thought was so horrible to me that I just said, I was like, I just said, screw this. I'm going to go start a pregnancy rights firm. I don't want anyone else to have to suffer. If this is so bad for me, you know, I'm as lucky as it gets in many ways. And so how much worse is this type of scenario for anyone else? So um, I did. I mean, I, many people would say my decision was reckless, I'm sure, because I knew nothing about employment law. I knew nothing about business management. I had never even supervised another individual. And I just learned a lot very fast. Yeah, uh, I was going to ask you know, if you had I, a roadmap, if you had I, a mentor, if you had any. To me, it's so, you know, it's so starting a firm just is, I find, mind boggling to even think about, much less with a, you know, small baby at home. And Well, you know, at first it was just me and, and little Sadia next to me <laughs> um, at home. 
And I started doing business coaching and training and learning all that stuff. And I quickly abandoned the idea of being small and scrappy. It's just not my (laughs) style. (laughs) It was never meant to be. And I started hiring and I've been hiring ever since. How big is your team now? I always forget. We're, there's around, I think, 14 of us. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, we're always hiring, but also, you know, one of my superstars is about to go to law school. <laughs> uh, nice. So people people come and go, but yeah, you're la- launching people into their onto their paths, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, we've had. Um, I've had another graduate who went who's on the bench now. Uh, so wow. and, and plenty of my employees are planning to go to law school eventually. And and I just, I hope I can help them launch and spread their wings and sort of mold them to my, to, to my philosophies. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I also, you know, I, I reached out to a lot of people. I, I did a lot of cold calling where I would ask people if I could take them out to lunch, if I could work for free on their cases. Uh, and that's how I learned employment law, which I knew nothing about before. Once that got off the ground, you know, then I said, let's expand into other areas of feminist litigation. And, you know, next up on our radar is this new practice area, what I sort of have more recently discovered is my real passion in life, which is fighting racism in healthcare. And we have started launching this new practice area where we bring race discrimination claims on behalf of women of color who are mistreated in labor and delivery. Um, and it's been my experience in employment discrimination that helped me connect the dots with the disparities. And I, I, I just had this light bulb moment that, you know, I could get into if we had another hour, but I realized that black women are dying in childbirth because doctors don't listen to them. That's why, um, there's all these other ostensible reasons people bring up to, you know, justify and explain away the statistics. And I don't accept those. I don't accept those reasons. I mean, from what I've seen, you can control for all of those variables and the outcomes are still so much worse for Black women. Yes. So what, yeah, what else is it other than they're not being listened to? Right. Uh, There's been several high profile, extremely privileged Black women who have suffered (laughs) adverse outcomes. And it's racism. It's just this pure distilled visceral form of racism and i'm i'm ready to start suing people yeah that i was going to ask what is it when you get involved in a new area like that and you're involved in in quite a few what does that look like is there you know you start taking cases public policy piece mm-hmm. how does it all kind we of come have together one case that we filed i mean i basically you know i'm an obsessive person <laughs> i i I work nonstop. I can't help it. It's not. I, I'm sure it's not healthy by any objective measure, but I come across a topic and I want to learn a ton about it. And so I've just, when I've gone into a new area, first employment law and now healthcare, I just read a lot, a ton. And I try to meet people and I try to talk to people. And it's a real joy. It's a real blessing to get to learn. It's such a, it's fun. (laughs) It's fun to be new at something. I was landlord tenant, you know, I was super good at it, especially by the end. I knew I was an ex, you know, I knew all of it. I knew how to handle it. 
but I wasn't learning as much. And it's been a joy to, to get to continue learning. Yeah, that's great. Um, another area that you are involved in that I wanted to ask you about is is one of your recent initiatives, the Survivor's Law Project. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and, and why you started it? Yes. So uh, Carrie Goldberg, who is the owner of my sister law firm, she and I worked together as baby lawyers right out of law school at the housing nonprofit. Uh, so we've been friends for, I guess, tw- you know, almost 20 years now. We are, we're best friends. We talk every day and, and we've built our law firm sort of side by side together doing similar work that in some areas overlaps and in some areas doesn't. But one of the areas of overlap is in these uh, sex abuse cases. And when the Adult Survivor Act was passed, which creates a look back window for survivor, adult survivors to sue their offenders, regardless of how long ago the abuse occurred, we just thought, you know, how can we maximize our impact? How can we, we're two brilliant, creative women who love suing people. <laughs> Let's team up. Like it's an, it was a no, it was kind of a no brainer. And with, with the power of our teams combined, we're just able to do more. We're able to take on more cases that individually might not have been feasible for one firm or the other. And it's just, it's been extremely fun and rewarding. Uh, having our teams work together, being able to collaborate, and just having the force of our powers combined. That's great. Yeah, I first read about Carrie um, in an, in that New Yorker profile that came out a few years ago. It's talking mm-hmm. about her work representing victims of revenge porn. There's an amazing photo of her kind of striding across the steps of the courthouse in that profile. Yes, which is, is great. If anybody, I know wants exactly to check what it out. you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, um, what are some of the the goals of of the Survivors Law Project? Is it is it bringing cases, it, getting justice for our clients? Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. You know, bringing cases is a tool, but a lot of our cases settle without the need to file a case. And if that's what gets our client the best results, that's what we want. Yeah. Do you, Do you feel like law school prepared you to do? plaintiff's work like this? It, it strikes me that maybe it's a different <laughs> skill set. I mean, so, I, okay, I'll let you answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, listeners can't see the look on your face, but I can. <laughs> yeah. Laughter. No, I don't think law school prepare me at all for this, which, you know, as I said, I mean, to be fair, number one, I was a terrible student. I skipped class a lot. Um, I didn't really do my reading. Number two, I picked classes based on my idea that I was going to be doing anti-death penalty work. Uh, So, you know, I I don't mean to cast any aspersions on the curriculum. I take 100% blame for anything I didn't get out of law school. But uh, I do think that in general, the practice of law is just an entirely different animal. Well, Well, first of all, the practice of running a Law firm management, running a business, that's one thing that's completely its own thing. Um, You know, litigation, being a plaintiff side attorney, I think is so related to that insofar as you can't be in a position where you need the money. And so you have any sort of incentive not to fight cases to the death. And I think it's sadly a common, 
you know, it's a, it's sort of a taboo topic, but it's an, a little bit of an unfortunate reality that there are a lot of attorneys out there, uh, you know, not my personal colleagues, but just in the world and, and the universe out there who struggle. And it, it has a negative impact on their clients too. So that's a huge factor that law school just has nothing to do with. Um, but I also think in general, the practice of law, you know, law school doesn't teach you about client management or actually, you know, like I just said, maybe it does. And I just skipped that class, but I don't think so. <laughs> as far as I'm aware. <laughs> I mean, even in my experience, and you're right, there's a course selection element to it, but to me, it felt more defense bar, you know, business law yeah. oriented. Yes. Um, yeah. And it struck me even when I was starting to practice and I, I worked in big law for a few years. I remember thinking, doing the case law research, like, if you know, it feels unfair sometimes how much the precedent is stacked in favor of, of defendants and often business defendants mm-hmm. put together a huge string site for so many different points. And it just, it strikes me when you're on the plaintiff side, it, it requires a different skill set of creativity, of using different levers, you know, not that you can't be creative in, in other areas of the law, but um, it's just a different, you know, it's a different animal, obviously. Absolutely. And it is an extremely creative endeavor. Um, I I use my creativity every day and I feel so lucky about that. Everything we do is we're crafting a story, you know, we're crafting a version of the facts and a version of the law that fit together. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there, there have been so many times when I go like, oh, I just have the best idea. And, and <laughs> <laughs> And it's an idea no one's ever had before. And sometimes it works. That's awesome. <laughs> and that is awesome. It feels so good. And it's it's great because you, you are not just making a difference for your client, but when you get a published decision, everyone can use that now. Right. Moving the needle. <laughs> yeah. The focus of, of this mini-series of, of the Hearing Podcast is, is in particular on women's advancement in the legal profession. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the employment law cases that you've been involved in and, and your own experience, which you've, you've already addressed a little bit. But just the nature of the work that you do, I imagine you, you've had kind of a front row seat to the types mm. of harassment and discrimination that women face as lawyers um, or working in the legal industry in, in other capacities. Um, so I wanted to touch on some of that a little bit um, and, and ask if you see, you know, what do you see amongst your clients and the type, types of cases that you've, you've brought um, involving the legal profession? Uh, we see, well, our, you know, cases run the gamut. Of course, we have a lot of cases where there is overt sexual harassment and overt discrimination, uh, and those are very painful and difficult but there's also a lot of cases where nothing is overt and there's just these patterns that you start to recognize and, and you recognize patterns of disparate treatment and you recognize patterns where women are penalized for things that men are rewarded for. And, you know, uh, study after study has corroborated this that women and men with identical behavior have different reactions to their mm-hmm. behaviors. Um, and, there was just a new study recently where they like, there's always these new analyses coming out and they all say exactly the same thing. So I almost think much of the discussion about gender discrimination is a little bit misguided because 
policies and procedures don't and can't affect people's attitudes and their deeply held beliefs. And mm-hmm. those deeply held beliefs are what drives the discrimination at the end of the day. You can force yourself not to, you know, talk about how hot someone's ass is if you're not Equinox. <laughs> um, you can force yourself, you know, if you're not Equinox to refrain from making overtly racist jokes about Black women in your workplace. But you still might have those attitudes and those will impact all of the tiny micro decisions we make every Mm -hmm. single day about who gets to do what, who gets what benefits. And, you know, who am I going to give credit for this idea? Who am I going to reach out to, to collaborate on this project with me? Who then someone else is going to see that that person gets credit for the project. And there are many times where, you know, it's, it's too granular to point to any particular <laughs> fact. I mean, we have to do very, very deep dives sometimes. And, uh, and, and you have to look at patterns and you have to look at a, a large number of people for the patterns. But the facts aren't always easy and black and white, you know. So saying that in some, I mean, that's the truth. But it also makes me feel hopeless often because I don't have control over the culture and what people believe. And a lot of what I try to do with my life and my law firm is just show by demonstration that women are brilliant, capable, funny people just like men are, which sounds so obvious, but a lot of people don't actually believe it deep down. You know, our Equinox trial team was probably eight women. And I didn't even think twice about that. You know, I'm used to dealing with mostly women at my firm, but other people were like, wait, what? An all-female team? And I'm like, who cares? Yeah, what? That's not, isn't that normal? But people are sort of used to just thinking there's going to be a man kind of like checking in and making sure everything's good. And (laughs) like we need some sort of supervision. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, we're better than all these all male firms. Like we're smarter, we're more creative, we're more aggressive, our complaints are better, our results are better, we do a better job. And it's not because we're women, but we are. Yeah. <laughs> um, and to be clear, not all of us are women. Um, yeah, that modeling is is so important, I think, because you're talking about changing people's attitudes. That's that's the only way I can think of to do it is just to, to have more visual, you know, examples out mm-hmm. there in society to, to get people to just see a different way. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you're a very authentic person, I think, in, in what I've seen, you know, I think you're, you know, you're very open about your ADHD and how that's impacted your career as a lawyer. Um, you seem very true to yourself, you know, and how you run your firm and, and, you know, I've seen your Twitter feed, you know, I don't think you hold <laughs> too much back there. Um <laughs> And I, I know, do a actually. lot of people. <laughs> I was gonna say maybe you do. Um, you know, a lot of people, particularly in law, I think um, to some extent it can be a privilege to be able to be, you know, your authentic self. You know, some people aren't given mm-hmm. the latitude depending on where they work and and who they are in terms of their identity. And other people, I think, in law just think that they can't be or they shouldn't be themselves if they mm-hmm. want to be successful lawyers. So I, I was curious if that's kind of a deliberate choice on your part to, to really embrace that that openness, um, or maybe it's just just who you are naturally. Do you do that within your your law firm as well? You know, as as a leader within your own firm. Um, I just I don't 
I don't have the skills and the emotional energy to pretend to be anything I'm not ever. It's just too, it sounds too taxing. You know, I don't even, I don't like having to keep secrets. I mean, I keep secrets in our cases, obviously, as a lawyer, it's part of my job, but in my personal life, like I'm pretty much an open book and it's just because it's what's easiest for me. But I do think, uh, you know, there's this excellent article by my colleague, Leah Goodridge, about how professionalism is a social construct that perpetuates inequalities. And she's a Black woman where, you know, this sort of idea of what constitutes authenticity and what authenticity is permissible um, is very racialized. And I enjoy an enormous level of white privilege that enables me to get away with a lot of behavior that my Black colleagues can't. I feel very confident of that. Um, if I was black, I would be forced to, you know, make myself smaller or suffer more political, more repercussions. And um, I think about that every day. You know, it, it doesn't go without notice. I also think when it comes to women and authenticity, it gets even all of the stereotypes are magnified a million times once you have children. And so I really try to talk about my kids and put my kids' artwork up. And I always mention my kids and I say, I can't come to court that day because my kid has something. And I'm, I'm doing that very much on purpose because, you know, people think that moms, that like the babiness rubs off on you and you like turn into a baby. And it's like, I'm still an adult, <laughs> you know, don't infantilize me just because I have an infant. That's not how parenting works. Um, but I think that privilege comes into play, not just when when I talk about authentic when we talk about authenticity and how I'm I'm open about my ADHD and how I I was a horrible student and I skipped a lot of class, I think that I like I know if I had been black, I don't know that I would have graduated high school because I was given so many second second chances and second opportunities and people who just looked the other way over my behavior and said, oh, you know, she's a good kid. We're going to let it slide. And my black counterparts who were equally genius as me were instead put into remedial classes. And so I, I don't know. I mean, there's, there are so many fronts that we're battling. <laughs> um, and, and again, that's about attitude too. You know, no one thought, oh, Susan's white. So let's give her a leg up. Right. But they thought, oh, she's a good kid. You were given the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Sorry, that was a huge tangent. I don't remember at all what your original question was. And no, that was exactly what I was thinking about. Um, you know, that modeling that you can do, partly because you have the privilege to do it. Um, and hopefully over time, you know, that can create space for other people too. Have you seen areas of progress in the time that you've been doing this work? You know, has anything gotten better? <laughs> uh, yes. Of course, you had this huge victory, too. So, like, you know, there's progress in terms of, you know, winning cases, but um, in, in the bigger sense. Well, you know, even in that case, in the Equinox case, the wrongdoer, the harasser, uh, he still works there. Oh, wow. <laughs> And so, I mean, there's all, it's always one or whatever it is, two steps forward, one step back. But, you know, I think 
there's been enormous progress since I started my firm with the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think still today, I mean, that's a whole other topic, but there is a lot of bias about against survivors. And uh, there's a lot of underlying ideas that survivors aren't credible or have, you know, some other agenda that it's this coveted status or, <laughs> and the right. truth is the opposite. I mean, I, like I'm a rape survivor and a child molestation survivor. And it was very hard for me to say that for the first time publicly. And I, I still feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about it. And I know there are people who will judge me negatively for talking about it, that I'm, you know, trying to exploit the information somehow, which is insane and horrible. <laughs> I shouldn't be ashamed. Um, but that's, that is how it is still. And, and I, but I do feel like it's changing. Uh, we have a lot of, a lot of clients who never spoke about what happened to them, let alone taking, having the courage to reach out to a lawyer. I mean, contacting a lawyer is, is a huge, brave step and, uh, and, and lots of people are doing it now. So I, I think that's a, a big, good sign of progress. You know, it's important to remember that not all survivors are women, uh, but it is a very gendered topic and the discrimination against male survivors is very gendered. Um, so male and non-binary survivors. So, but I, you know, we all have, many of us have a tendency to speak about survivors as though they're female. I do it. I just did it myself. And so I'm just, I'm catching myself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. I wanted to ask, you know, how you can counsel clients who may be reluctant to come forward or a little bit unsure if they want to bring claims. Is, is there a strategy or, or are there certain things that you can help walk them through? We counsel people to do what's best for themselves. Um, and this is in, in, you know, in any type of case, but it's especially true in sex abuse cases. Uh, sometimes pursuing the case or pursuing litigation isn't the right thing for that person. There, it, there is a real emotional toll that comes with pursuing litigation, and it's not for everyone. And I always tell people there's no monetary value that is worth sacrificing your health. <laughs> you know, we have one, one life, I guess, depending on your beliefs. I personally believe <laughs> we have one life. <laughs> and I want each of us to make the most of that one life. and. If bringing a lawsuit is going to be a form of sacrifice to yourself, then I don't want you to do that. I want you to spend your energy and your passion doing something else. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. It's, not a, a, it's not a decision of weakness. It's a decision of strength. Uh, because I think the most feminist thing one can do is to do what's best for yourself <laughs> and not feel like you have to take some action because it's some other person or some imaginary voice in your head is telling you it's the right thing to do. So we encourage all of our clients to be true to themselves and make the decision that's right for them. And oftentimes we tell people, I don't think this is what's best for you. And we could make a lot of money. You could make a lot of money, but I don't think it's in your best interest. And I would rather say that a million times over than make all the money in the world. Right. Yeah. Keep the client the client's interest at the center in, in the truest sense. Mm-hmm. So for this uh, this series, we're asking all of our guests the same two questions at the end. The first is is a bit of a call to action, or if you have any practical 
advice for our listeners who are um, lawyers, legal professionals from around the world, you know, what is one thing you would ask them to do or do less of or do more of um, to help address the challenges that we've been talking about today, particularly for making the legal profession a more um, diverse and equitable place? It's a great question. And, you know, I actually, I'm still struggling to answer, but I think I would say, I just wish that everyone would try harder, myself included, to think more about our unconscious biases and what biases we bring with us everywhere we go, every day of our lives. Um, I think that there are things you can do, you know, to recognize when you're gravitating towards people who look like you or gravitating towards people with your same background to be conscious. And, and it's the little, it's those tiny little decisions. Who do, who am I smiling at on the subway? (laughs) You know, who am I moving out of the way for on the sidewalk? Which person in the room am I approaching with my question? Who, which voices am I listening to? Who am I following on Twitter? Who, you know, who am I watching on TV or, or whatever? It's just so easy to fall into a pattern of favoring people who are similar to ourselves. And it's something I think we all need to work on. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great. And then the second question is, this one might be even harder. <laughs> um what would success look like to you? Um, so, you know, how will we know when we we reach the goal and the legal profession is is a diverse, equitable, inclusive, you know, wonderful place to be? Uh, you're right. This one is even harder. But I, I <laughs> fantasy to world mind immediately that crystallized one little piece of what equality would look like, and that is that um, at my at my recent Equinox trial. My adversaries were are because the case is still going on. Two white men who I respect, and you know, they're we have a great relationship. I think they're good lawyers. I don't mean to cast any aspersions on them. You know, I actually like them, which isn't always true. But um, they at the counsel table, if they got a ruling against them on an objection, they would go ah, and <laughs> they go, ah, and they would like act super mad and just go. Ah. And, and, and I just kept thinking, like, if I did that, everyone would just immediately write me off, let alone like a woman of color would never like. So <laughs> that was just the first thing I thought of It's just sort of like being able to express yourself like mm-hmm. these white white men who are good people you know there's not they're not bad people they're they're not evil lawyers they're nice people who i like and respect and but and, and they didn't think twice about just going <laughs> and getting super mad about things and so i think it, it's just it's emblematic of the thought process you know it's like the mm-hmm. more marginalized you are as a person the more you have to censor yourself and the more mental effort you have to put into all of your actions and all of your behaviors. And I would like there to be an equality on that front. You know, I wish maybe we can end up somewhere in the middle where we're not all running around going, <laughs> but, but we could, if we wanted to, <laughs> right? Yeah. maybe all of us are kind of, 
somewhere in the middle of that spectrum and, and we all get to give it the same amount of thought. I love that. Well, I'll hold that image in my mind then. <laughs> um, Susan, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, it's so interesting to, to hear your insights about all of these issues, the work that you're doing, um, the firm that you're leading. Really appreciate your, your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. We love to hear from our listeners. So if you want to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas, you can reach us at thehearing at tr.com. See you next time. The Hearing. Twill Takeover. A legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com slash thehearing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.